anybody can have a look at your world and go, you know what, we could do that cheaper and better and faster and make and just effectively erase this industry. Um, we've seen that happen a lot and not just for digital reasons, right? We always think about this as the digital dis disruption, but it's much bigger than that. It's a kind of cultural disruption. Hello, and thanks again for joining me for another episode of the Hybrid Intelligence Podcast. My name is Lee Sankey. Today, I'm delighted to introduce the first of two episodes of a conversation with someone whose work has been a big influence on my thinking over the years, the cultural anthropologist, strategist, and author, Grant McCracken. Grant holds a PhD from the University of Chicago, and he's taught at MIT and Harvard. He's also consulted with numerous and diverse organizations on strategy, including Google, Nike, Oprah, Netflix, and even the White House, to name a few. He's the author of 12 books, including Culturematic and The Chief Culture Officer. His latest release is The Honor Code, and this summer he has another book coming out called The Return to the Artisan. Many of you are going to be familiar with Grant's work, but if you're not, I highly recommend seeking him out. I've had the privilege of working with Grant and also attending one of his culture camps, and he's uh, a pioneer on the critical role that culture plays in successful business. And not culture in the organizational or HR sense, but in the big C sense, which we'll hear more about in a moment. Now, I could listen and talk to Grant for hours. And of true to form, we ran over time on the first session, but he was kind enough to continue our chat in a part two. In this episode, we discuss what Grant means by culture's relevance to business success, the state of play of its adoption as a strategic input, how design could be the champion of that idea, and some of the practical things we can start to do to utilize culture in our thinking. So here's part one of our conversation. Welcome to the show, Grant. Hey, Lee. Thanks for having me. Great to chat. Yeah. So I suspect many people will be familiar with with Grant and uh, and his work. And obviously the the challenge, brilliant challenge for preparing or thinking about a sh doing a show like this with Grant is there's so many things I'd like to talk about and, and cover. So it's actually, I think today, like any one of the things we could talk about could be a whole episode. So in a sense, I think what you're going to listen to hopefully is a sort of cultural tapas. We're probably going to go all over the grid and on some different tangent, but hopefully all of it's going to be fun uh, and interesting and useful. So I first met Grant uh, around 10 years ago. And I have to say, Grant, you've been a big influence on, on my work and, and my thinking. And I think what you really switched me onto, which is what I'm going to ask you to explain to, to people listening, is, is this idea of the power of culture as it relates to business and capitalism. And you've described culture as the dark matter of capitalism. So when we say culture, we're not talking about corporate culture, but we're talking big C culture. So can you just explain for people who are not necessarily sort of familiar with that idea, just the sort of basic role of culture as it relates to business? Yeah, for me, uh, culture is a matter of three things. It's cultural meanings, it's cultural rules, and its cultural trends. Um, the the uh, I think a good example here is the work we did together in London for Barclays Bank, because uh, it kind of highlights the extent to which culture supplies the architecture of consciousness. It supplies the lenses through which we see the world. So in that case, we were working for a client that was deeply immersed in a notion of the bank. Um, 
Uh, it's a cultural notion of what a bank is, how a bank should look, how a bank should act. Because those meanings and those rules and the trends of the moment are cultural, they're embedded in a set of assumptions that every Barclays employee takes to work every day. Um, and so the first work of the anthropologist or the designer or the, the culture, the student of culture, I think, is, is to act like a ferret. I used to use this metaphor at, at MIT until a student just said, look, this is the most unflattering metaphor <laughs> I could use. <laughs> right. Please just stop using the metaphor. It's still a good one, though, because the notion is we, the students of culture, dive into this subterranean world that contains the meanings and the rules and the trends of, of culture. Um, and we help bring those to the surface of consciousness so that a bank like Barclays could, can see, oh, that's true. We are, to some extent, we're certainly informed by a cultural understanding of what a bank is. Um, and to some extent, we are the captive of that notion of what a bank is. And I think one of the things we recommended, we, you know, we went around London and, and looked at banks and we noticed that those banks were shuttered and dark at night. All of London is busting out all over sort of the early, the middle, something, the late evening. Londoners are out and about. Um, and most institutions are lit up like uh, parade floats. Um, but in the case of the banks, they're, they're, um, they're solemn and they're, they're inward looking and they're utterly dark. And our notion, our notion was, well, why is it? that a bank should be so solemn and, and withholding of itself? What, why could it not be a place that is open at night, uh, welcoming at night, the kind of place, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of Londoners um, scheme at night about the startup they're eager to start up? Why couldn't the bank be the place they, they did that in the company of other people enthusiastic by the, uh, at the prospect of starting up something? So, so but why should this matter? to a business? Why should culture influence people's thinking? How would you describe why the board, executives, designers, people need to pay attention to it? Right. To use the language of the managerial literature, there are, there are two books that inf have influenced the C-suite particularly, not just two, but two that matter here. One was called Blue Oceans, and it was about how the corporation could discover places where there was no competition, but plenty of value. They could harvest that value value, move on to glory. The other was Black Swans, right. uh, written by Taleb, right? Who says, look, yeah. there are changes in the, on your horizon that you can't see because they so depart from your assumptions about how your world is constituted that you can't see them until they're upon you. You can't see them until they've actually changed the, the rules of, in, of your industry. So it's, I think that's, culture is particularly good at helping you see the blue oceans and avoid the Black Swans. Um, and those are the two, you know, in a dynamic world where everybody is in, is in every business, right? It used to be, well, everybody was siloed. And if you were uh, interested in uh, hydroelectric power, that's all you did. Now you've got firms in hydroelectric power kind of casting, because everybody's so intellectually mobilized and so yeah. much more intellectually sophisticated, because business schools have got so much better at helping people think big thoughts about entire worlds, anybody can have a look at your world and go, you know what, we could do that cheaper and better and faster and make and just effectively erase this industry. 
Um, we've seen that happen a lot and not just for digital reasons, right? This is also, we always think about this as the digital dis disruption, but it's much bigger than that. It's a kind of cultural disruption where people are so mobile that they can seize your, you know, you, we're all the captives of our own worlds and somebody can come along and take that away from us. So I think that's the big thing. Blue oceans and black swans is the kind of the big deliverable here. Yeah. And just coming back to what you were talking about with the work we did at Barclays, just to bring this idea of, of culture to life. One of the things which really struck me about never having worked in a bank before and looking for opportunities to create change and to think differently and how culture could fit into that. It was it was recognizing you talked about the sense of the city and how the banks fit into that and how they're, they're out of the out of step. I think that the whole symbolism of skyscrapers for example and those symbols of power that came up you know in the in the 60s 70s and 80s and banking being that symbol of strength or this the, the idea of the, the semiotics of a vault and strength and safety all of that was starting to melt culturally because every time there was a banking scandal you know you'd see you'd see a helicopter view of all these skyscrapers. And it was almost like if you were starting a bank today, would you put it in a skyscraper? Another cultural example, I think, which fits really nicely in this is this idea of a shift from formality to informality. And so it's this idea of getting dressed up to go and see the bank manager. And, and no one wants to do that like anymore and I, I remember one of the first times I had a chat with you know Monzo through the app and it had such a different vibe to talking to another bank it was so much more human and a lot of those qualities wouldn't have fitted in the 80s or the 90s but these are representative of things which all of a sudden those things which are strengths in a way yeah suddenly yeah. become negative and that's all culture right yeah yeah it's a perfect example of cultural meanings and, and cultural rules and you're right the old-fashioned notion was that the would-be um the person presenting themselves for a loan at a bank came as a supplicant right they came in a state of they perfectly understood that the bank was in large and in charge and and, and they spoke from on high and we were not worthy and tugged the forelock and begged for money um, and that model really has, you know, that I think some bankers quite loved that idea, right? That there's in the U.S. we talk about white shoe bankers as being sort of bankers were the aristocrats of capitalism, and right, right. And, and and yes, of course, everybody was obliged to answer to their uh, expectations. But I think what we're seeing now is this beautiful cultural shift where all of those hierarchies. Uh, and those asymmetries of status have shifted so that now I'm, so we have beautiful cultural conflicts that I better going on right now as we speak somewhere, there are two people sitting in an office at the bank where the banker is trying to play out the superordination, you suffer children to come unto me to see if you're worthy for a loan. And the supplicant is thinking, you know what, this is stupid. Why should I? There's a competitive situation here. I have alternatives. Why should I be a supplicant? And these two people are trying to find how to fashion this conversation out of these conflicting meanings and rules. So we're in a transitional moment. And I think smart banks have made have you know have made the transition. Yeah. And the ones who are suffering are suffering precisely because they can't see. 
that the old rules have changed and, and, and haven't embraced uh, the places to which our culture has moved. Yeah. And, and, and as you were saying, it's a lot more than digital disruption. This, these, these are human behaviors, perceptions, constructs, understanding. It, it's almost as if, if it was zooming it out and thinking bigger than just banking, it's almost like, is an idea going to be accepted uh, and how it's perceived? Does it resonate? And all of those things translate directly into business viability is something viable yeah the example i i use that that sort of almost drove me to write a book called culture matic was this notion of what we call fantasy football or fantasy baseball actually and i'm sure there's an english version i don't know what it's called but the notion is football Right. I guess it's the same thing, right? We we slice up the performance on any given weekend by all of these footballers um, in Europe and I guess the UK. And then you reassemble those results as if those players were playing for the, some set of those players are playing for the same team. So, um, and somebody gets to manage that team, right? The, the people who invented that idea were Smart alecky a sports journalist smoking cigars in a New York hotel room. And they were doing it in that kind of well, wouldn't it be funny if? And it several people in the room went, This is stupid. Nobody is ever going to want to manage a fantasy baseball team. Snap out of it. And they let it go. They publicized it somehow, but they let it go. They didn't get copyright. And of course, that's an idea that colonized the American sports world ferociously. Right. Yeah. So people who to the extent now that people will will hope desperately for certain outcomes on the on the pitch, on the on the field um, that will not work to the advantage of the home team because they have a player who can be the beneficiary. And that will mean that the team, their their fantasy team will do better. Their loyalties. Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. yeah, it is interesting. And it really and so we can see the cultural underpinnings of that, right? That really is a shift from passive recipient to of the outcomes of worlds over which you have no control to this notion of, well, I can, how hard can this be? I can do this. I can manage a team. I'd like to try to manage a team. So it's that classic shift we see played out. You know, you think of punk music, for instance, as being that classic shift of people just standing up and going, I can do music. Um, and it doesn't, even matter if it's not especially good music. To some extent, that's the point of the exercise. Thank you very much. But you get that kind of shift from the passive to the active. And, 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 and so you would have thought, you know, in a fully kind of activated culture like our own, you would have thought that somebody would sit down and say, you know, technically, we know there is this cultural shift taking place in the meanings and the rules and, the, and in this, the form of this big trend. It should come to sports. And how could it come to sports? Well, you could get something like, and then they dream up fantasy fantasy sports and they invest accordingly or they take out trademarks. And instead of being those unlucky sports journalists who ended up literally empty-handed, despite the fact that they had invented the future, um, you, you could invent the future and make a fortune. So that's a classic kind of blue ocean play that's available to you if and only if you get the cultural changes tectonic cultural changes taking place yeah so if you if you're not aware of culture thinking about culture treating culture as a strategic input 
you've got a a, a big gap in your thinking. Yeah. You are either going to miss things which are going to come along and disrupt your industry, or you're going to be missing out on things which are potentially worth tens of millions of pounds or completely new industries. To this point, you wrote another book called The Chief Culture Officer in 2009, where essentially you were saying, look, this this is such an important aspect of contemporary business and business uh, strategy. Companies need a chief culture officer and not in a kind of HR organization culture way, but someone or a group or a team thinking about these cultural trends as they relate to your company, either in a defensive way or an opportunistic way. So that book was written in 2009. How do you feel things have progressed since then? Do you find businesses are thinking about culture more or do you think there's still blind spots there? Or do you think you know the field hasn't moved on in the way that you might have hoped? What's your take on the state of play? Yeah. Um, certainly, it hasn't moved as quickly as I would have liked. And I thought it was a pretty obvious argument and, and that people would uh, might embrace it more quickly. Um, I, I did some work uh, before the, the COVID uh, pandemic in Toronto on the question of, of wine. And I was talking to a young woman, a um, woman in her 20s, who was um, had just come back from what she was calling a Christmas party. And she said... Um, so I was asking her about the conversations that took place over drinks and what drinks did people drink and what did she drink? Normally she would drink wine, but in this case, no, she was having mixed drinks. Why? I asked her, she said, well, I think, I think it seems more adult when you drink um, a mixed drink. It makes you sort of more sophisticated. And I was trying to make an impression on my bosses who were all there. So we got into a conversation about her relationship with her bosses and it became clear very quickly that she had lied her way through this event. She was making impressions with the deliberate intent of deceiving them about who she was and what she stood for and what she cared about. And I said, listen, you just lied your way through this event. And she looked at me and said, "Uh, no, I don't think so. This is the way you have to treat boomers. This is the only way you can treat boomers because they just don't understand certain parts of the world. And so you have to speak sort of slowly and clearly and you have to say the things they want to hear, which means as a young woman who in the course of the interview was doing this beautiful stuff that I think comes out of a performance culture that's been informed by Instagram and TikTok and that whole presentation of the self as a dramatic activity, right? She was doing all of that stuff. She'd ceased to do that for boomers because, you know, they kind of lose the focal plane when you do that. That's difficult for them. So it occurred to me that this woman, I'm sorry, I'm getting carried away here because it's just so anthropologically beautiful, but just to summarize, boomers will take a non-cultural understanding of the world with them to their grave. Most of them will, right? They, they have, for them, culture is the dark matter of, of capitalism. They don't really know how to think about it. When you suggest that they might include it in the ways in which they do business, they push back really hard. And I was telling you about this, uh, this guy in Toronto who pushed back ferociously deeply intelligent guy i mean really gifted so no 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 shortage of of horsepower with which to grasp the argument but he wasn't having it because he took it to be my particular enthusiasm 
So this and is I in think... response to a paper that you wrote about yeah. <clears throat> why design is not capitalizing on the role of culture in its work. Yes. Um, so to that extent, this is a generational problem. Boomers will age out of their positions of authority in the organization and younger generations will come up who are, who, for whom there's no such thing as popular culture. It's all just culture, right? And they take for granted that you would, you swim in a sea of memes, that the best way to make an argument is to refer to the TV show and, and presumably the, the, scene, the scene meme that helps you tell the story. All of that stuff is just second nature. The frustrating thing therefore for me as an anthropologist is that sometimes they don't see this in, in a systematic way, um, but, but, but they're right there for the cultural conversation. So uh, I wrote that book, Chief Culture Officer, in the hopes that, with the notion that, listen, you boomers don't want to think about culture, and that's okay. But listen, just appoint somebody to the C-suite who does think about it. And guess what? Generations X, Y, and Z are all ready for this assignment, thank you very much. And they're sick and tired of sitting in boardrooms and listening to you cluelessly, listen, listening to your tone deafness when it comes to culture. So give, give them at least this. Uh, and that wasn't enough to move them. But there's been small, I just, every so often I get a call from somebody, I just got a call from a guy at CBS uh, who stands high in the scheme of things. And uh, who said, oh, yeah, I read that book. It just changed my life. Um, and, 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 and I just literally hand it out to everybody I employ. So there are small pockets of enthusiasm, but uh, it just hasn't taken off in the way that I hoped it would. My observation with regard to culture itself, which, again, is, is building on what, what you've written, is this idea of it's getting inherently more complex. And I think in some ways it might actually be quite frightening um, or perplexing, certainly, because you've talked about, you know, it used to be this idea of you had mainstream and the avant-garde. And now it, things are not that simplistic. Maybe the barriers to it being adopted more widely is this idea of how do you actually get your arms around it to make, make sense? And how do, you, how do you translate these cultural insights into... So what that, right. that, that can be used. Right. Um, yeah. That's the, for me, the sort of happy news. You know, I, when I got into this business being a consulting anthropologist, I thought, geez, you know, if this is a house of cards, what if I'm just kidding them and myself? Maybe this can't really give useful advice. Um, and so I've been pleased to see uh, when I'm given assignments, I always take them on because otherwise I would starve to death. I always say yes to the assignment. Even when a, a small voice inside me says, really, you think you can, is this? Yeah. So anyhow, but I've done now a succession of things um, for, for, for a, a diversity of, of clients, um, Netflix and uh, um, State Farm, a big insurance company, um, um, just uh, uh, car companies and, and toy companies. And it's amazing how often you can come up with things that they hadn't seen, that they that they deeply embrace, that they cherish having, they look at you with this kind of affection, as, as if you've done something astonishing. And um, and often I'll be leaving the room and I'll say, you know, thank you for employing, you know, thanks for the chance to work on this. 
um, you, you should know, you know, that some of what happened here is contained in a book and it costs a lot less than I'm going to charge you for this uh, consulting assignment. And they say, oh, no, no, never mind. You know, it's we don't know what that is. And we're not going to look at what that is. You, you tell us, we'll give you a problem. You give us a cultural solution and we're good. But we're not going to open up the problem solving paradigm that we use in this marketing department. Because as you say, boy, there's an awful, you know, you lift that rock up and there are an awful lot of things crawling, crawling around beneath it. Um, Which is, I think, to say, so I teach this culture camp uh, in which I say, look, you can you can spend a day and you can get yourself on the map here. You can get the fundamentals in place and and then you can start translating what you do know into a set of categories that kind of mobilizes then what what you have, the intellectual resources you have at your disposal. Um, So it's not, you know, this is not. you, you know, the abstract, right? You can't, you can make it, yeah. you, you can't, you can make it practical. But I, I, I wonder whether, and, and we should talk about this in a, in a second, but just relating to its adoption, I wonder whether culture as a strategic input and anthropology as a, as a discipline in a way has fallen victim to the same things that a design has in a way okay um which kind of relates to this idea of your question about why is the design community not talking or utilizing culture and and i think part of the reason for that is what happened with design is it got caught up in the iterative nature of business so contemporary business now is dominated by process right you know agile by sprints it's dominated by data decision making by data conversion funnels a b testing optimization speed agility and within that construct of the way things get done in organizations there isn't space for reflection deep thinking fuzziness a lot of the things which would relate to design or anthropology it's difficult to fight to put those in in a two-week product sprint for example Mm -hmm. um so i i wonder whether some of the barrier to being adopted in a way anthropology and the design community are kindred spirits because they've both been affected in, in 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 different different ways just because of the theater and the way in which business happens mm. now and mm. the role of data. Yeah, that's very well said. And, and the problem with anthropology is that the thing it's about culture is amorphous and, and hard to, hard to think to use Tim language, but there's also no process of the kind you're talking about that, you know, you put the data in one end and you work your way through to conclusions at the other end. My wife comes from the corporate world and, uh, and has spent a lot of time problem solving within the corporate world. And she says, look, you have to give them a process. You can't just say, here are the intellect. You know, it's all very University of Chicago to say, well, here are the big ideas and you work out how to apply them. That's not how corporations work. They need to have a system uh, and a process. So I've tried to, I still really haven't uh, um, made 
done as much of that as I can. But I think you're absolutely right. That design perhaps did that. And then it got pulled under in some sense, back to an ocean, yes, I think, yeah, that's... Sense, right? And then that became all it was, was, was the process. So the trick is, how do you protect that intangible, ineffable stuff that, that is at the heart of value production, forgive the term, in both design and anthropology, right? That's where the, the real stuff gets accomplished is that the anthropologist and or designer looks at the world and says, oh, look, Here's something you can't see, but my discipline gives me these lenses that make this stuff obvious. And that's the beginning of creativity and innovation and, and uh, a new approach to banking or to, to insurance. Or, um, and as you say, that's, that's uh, I think, I don't know how you would create a process for that, right? I don't know how you would say most of what we've been ta talking about. You know, yeah, the, the, the trick is, is not to get pulled under, not to make the process um, the, uh, the, the, the whole of the, of the undertaking, but to leave room for that deeply conceptual stuff from which value really comes. You've written or suggested how anthropology, uh, you know, as a field hasn't grasped the opportunity or taken advantage of this, its, its heritage in terms of the strategic influence that it could have had in business. You've talked about maybe design taking up the, the, the mantle and you, you wrote a paper about that and you said you'd had, had some sort of strong opinions as, as, as to why it hasn't been adopted. So do you, do you think that is something that the design community should be doing? Or why did you think the design community would be, be the one to take that I read a statement by IDEO about its design philosophy. It sometimes makes, you know, gives us a glimpse of into their thinking. So we're right now talking about that space of conceptualization, not process, but the deep thinking that needs to happen. And they managed to make their case for IDEO and for design without ever talking about culture. And I thought, wow, this is like an economist never talking about value or a physicist never talking about energy. It, it has to be there. And I went back to the original, the founding piece uh, that, that created the idea of design thinking, and it's all over that document. So I thought it got dropped out at some point. So my notion was, well, I had two ideas. One is that this is a foundational uh, study for, ought to be a foundational study for design. Um, and, and nobody was much interested in that. I got this ferocious pushback from this guy in Toronto who said, this is just special pleading on yourself, on your part. You're the culture guy, so of course you want everybody to care about it, but we don't because it doesn't matter. I know. Okay, then. Um, thanks for sharing. Um, and then I thought, well, listen, maybe there's another way. Right now, the way I'm phrasing it, this is kind of a, a, a strategic kind of issue. I'm phrasing it like something you have to do because you've been bad. You didn't look at culture, you didn't take it seriously, and now you have to. And I thought that's not going to work um, for obvious reasons. I thought maybe the thing to do here is to suggest that culture, is, the concept is, is like a, 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 an orphan um, and that it's free for the asking. And so my argument here was that free, available for the asking. So my notion was that uh, culture had been badly treated by anthropologists and that designers, should they choose to do so, could, could you know, to, uh, the, the essay was called Welcome to the Orphanage. 
And the, and the argument was, this is a beautiful idea, works, sits beautifully in the intellectual and the practical and professional traditions of, of design. It's just, it's not being well treated by anthropology. And further to your point, I think there's a variety of reasons why anthropologists didn't ever make themselves useful to problem solving outside itself, despite the fact that everybody was saying, anthropologists, absolutely bring him or her in. Let's hear from them. This, this has to be interesting. I think part of the problem is that anthropologists were so much the students of cultures that didn't have commerce that they didn't know what to think about a culture that turned so completely on culture. There was both forming of culture and, 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 um, and that, that gave itself over to, to, to commercial outcomes that then had that acted as cultural causes and cultural effects. <clears throat> so I think that's part of the problem. Literally, they came back to their own culture and went, what? This, no, I'm not sure this is a culture. That was a favorite idea that Americans, North Americans, Westerners don't have a culture. So that's, I think, the problem. That's the reason I think they may have absented themselves. But that leaves us with that opportunity that somebody else could take it up. And why not designers? It seems uh, like a good fit. But I, I think there's something around, you know, certainly when I went to university, it was not something that was taught. You know, designers are obviously taught uh, and think deeply about user research and trends and I think many designers may would argue with what we're saying here and to say well we do think about culture but we just call it something else right. you know design will is all about empathy um, right. and it will draw it inputs from behavioral science and, and various other things so research is a is, is key component of, of design and, and getting it things done but I I'm not aware of it necessarily being wrapped up in a way under the umbrella, which is explicitly about culture in a deeper way that goes beyond trends. Yeah. And it was none of that when I was at university, but I wonder on university courses now, whether they're talking about meaning and, mm. and giving examples of how a cultural idea, um, this this shifts from yeah artificial to organic which opens up new industries i wonder whether in the same way that designers have to think about inputs as a form of material you know it's a very a few years ago is this trendy phrase about data as a material design traditionally is about form and the materials and the input so it's this idea of data as a material i wonder whether there's also something around culture as a material and how how a designer forms and sculpts and bounces off it and in quotes prototypes with it um yeah and and, be, and because there doesn't seem to be a formula or a you know or a direct process by which you can get to these insights and so what's i think those again are some of the things which may because pe people know how to go and do user research <coughs> interviews and people are familiar with quant and qual inputs as part of their you know process but uh, there just seems to be that uh, that opportunity for this deeper and higher thinking that that wraps it up in the in the in the context yeah either stops you being dad dancing as i said before or this idea of say, saying oh 
we just turned the lights on and there's this huge beast here which is gonna eat, you know eat us and we mm. didn't we didn't see it like the gruffalo or something right. turn the, the lamp on right so uh, you know i thought maybe i was unduly pessimistic about talking about culture and the and the commercial world i had um i had a great conversation with a woman in uh the consumer packaged goods industry who said um come in and let's talk and she said listen here here's what i'm thinking I don't want you to tell me about the latest thing. I'm really not interested in that because we can't, by the time we get our mitts around it, it's moved on. So what I want from you are the trajectories, the big arcs or the the, the changes that give us some notice, give us if, if only several months and hopefully a little more than that to, to see what's coming and to make our adjustments. So I thought now this is the first time in my career where somebody had asked me that question. And, and often what I've seen a lot of is people say, what's the latest thing? You know, what are the kids thinking? Um, right. and, As opposed and, to currents, you, I think you call them currents, don't you? Like what's the like a signal or something right. which is not like a cool hunter. This is this is right. the latest thing, something which is a bit more about a trajectory, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I did this chart just quickly, and I don't know if it makes any sense at all. Let's just see if I can simplify this. Um, one of the best ways to get people talking about culture is to ask them to talk about trends. Everybody gets trends. Everybody follows trends, right? But the trouble with looking, there are two problems with looking at trends only as trends, and that is that it gives us a quite small piece of the larger puzzle. Point okay. of fact, I think we want to capture fast culture and slow culture. And when you look at trends, you're almost always excluding most of slow culture, the deeper foundations of American, British, Anglo-American, Western culture. And you're working at a level of particularity that's, you know, it sits in the middle, which is useful for some purposes. But what you exclude are larger patterns, Molly, and what you exclude are are the smaller pieces that go into any given trend. So what Grant's um, holding up here, if you imagine uh, four quadrants, so going left to right, you've got slow on one side and fast, and then you've got another axis, which is large and small. So yeah, like four quadrants. And if we're just talking about trends, it's this idea that you're only covering a small uh, part of the football pitch, a bit of the slow probably right. more around the fast, but you're not really going along the uh, the y-axis. You're not really getting into the, you know, those large and, and uh, large trends or longer or slower moving uh, things. Right. right. So you can kind of see some part of my career has been about how do I sneak culture into the conversation? You know, just constantly looking for a way to say, hey, hey, you know, have a look at this. Um, and so this will be the latest version. The strategy, as you can see, is, well, people who don't care about culture do care about the future. And when they think about the, the operational term, when it comes to the future, are trends. It's a good idea for some purposes, but it's a bad idea for other purposes. And we can get people who use the term trends to use it in a slightly different, augmented, expanded way. So we can kind of expand that idea, then, then um, that might be one way to, to get culture into the conversation. People were listening to this and and think, okay, I, I buy the concept. Okay, is this idea of if I'm not thinking about culture as part of my strategic thinking, or when I'm thinking about uh, new opportunities, I've got an input missing. 
So I want to do something about it. So what, what are some of the practical things that someone could, could do? Um, I'm working on something I'm calling the Griff, which is an attempt to track roughly 250 to 300 Wii developments. Um, some of them are trends, uh, some of them are larger than trends, some of them are smaller than trends. But the idea here is to take advantage of that magnificent sorting device we have in our in our in in the unconscious mind. It's the one that makes us when we're sitting on the subway or or reading something online and we go, hmm, hmm, that's interesting. That moment is the moment when uh, our expectations have been violated. Um, you know, constantly surveying the world, working with the world, engaging with the world, and those expectations are being reinforced. But occasionally, the world will send us a signal that prompts us to stop. That's the beginning of wisdom for these purposes, right? It's like, oh, that shouldn't have happened. And then to build back from that to the cultural assumptions that you brought to bear on the world and how the world might have changed. Um, I mean, just to take that example we were talking about before, the young woman who goes to the Christmas party and, in, and, and, and lies her way through it in an attempt to accommodate boomers. I had no idea. I mean, I am a boomer, so I'm sure this has happened to me. I'm sure I've been patronized in just this way it's horrifying to think of, but I'm sure it's happened to me. And to think that one generation has systematically uh, um, trumped up uh, the way they, the messages they cultivate for the senior people in their lives is extremely interesting, right? This is, this is, this is, this is, uh, back to our banking metaphor, this is the great train robbery or whatever, that, right? This is a generation hoodwinking another generation at a monumental scale and doing it with such theatrical acuity that boomers have no idea no this idea. is taking place. Right, it just and they end up looking. You know, they still the boomers were hippies, and you know they were they were they had some clue of what's happening in contemporary culture. And for them to discover that, in point of fact, they're the sort of the butt, not just of the joke, but of this piece of cultural artifice, is breathtaking. Now, I should say that I don't know that every young every millennial in this case does uh, engages in this act of artifice. Um, it may have been just this woman and, and, and her pals. That's always the problem with anthropology, right, is that it begins with these moments of ethnographic insight, and then you have to figure out how distributed this it's is. And that's, right? yeah. exactly. and that's where you could, you know, that's where we, the survey data and any kind of data for that matter becomes extraordinarily um, useful. And, and so I'm building this grift that's meant to keep track of these little glimmers, which may or may not be, First of all, something, there's always the question, is this something or is it nothing? If it's something, you don't know whether how minor it will stay or whether it will ride the diffusion curve and eventually install itself as the next a big thing in our culture. And then you need to keep track of the numbers that give you a sense of where it's going and how, how, it's, how, it's, how far up the diffusion curve it has moved. So that's- When you, a, when you say track, what could that mean? Could that be- how many times a term is referenced, yeah. uh, the way a term is used, uh, yes. or some kind of, if it's about a behavior change, that you see something and think, oh, that's interesting, that you see it 
popping up elsewhere? Is it is it is when when yeah. you say in quotes track, is that the kind of thing that you're talking about? Yeah, then it's a question, and this is this is tricky stuff that's I think beyond the the usual expertise of the anthropologist, perhaps also the designer, but it's to find those um, those those the phenomena that are, can be used as a measure of of something else. And the case in point here might be that phrase "Okay, boomer," right, which emerged a couple of years ago as this kind of expression of contempt for relatively younger speakers as talking to relatively. This is the first time I had heard that, and it was a kind of a flare. Anyhow, the point is it's measurable. Right, you can track it on Twitter. You can track it on social media generally. You can watch it surface in in blogs, and and I've really interested these days in using fanfic. I have a friend who works at Wattpad um, who says that they can see genres changing in almost near time uh, because the fanfic. You can see fanfic. They've they've got um, tens of hundreds of thousands of stories pouring through their platform every day and they can see how story changing, how storytelling is changing. So data there is just fantastically beautiful, right? And you can pick up, you can spend the rest of your life trying to read the fanfic written in a single day, but, but good statistical detection and someday AI will let you pick up that, right, that the trace. Of, exactly. So that yeah, pattern yes, recognition is, is getting better. Uh, it's a kind of a foot race though, right? Culture is fragmenting and becoming more feverishly oppositional. So you've got more people pre presuming to make culture and they're making more in different kinds of culture. And they're driven by this fragmenting ideological base as a result of which there's a lot out there to keep track of. Um, and so you really need all this statistical um, uh, aids and, and ways of tracking are, are, are absolutely essential, but completely thrilling, right? To see the data just come up. Uh, and then to put together the ethnographic stuff with the, uh, with the statistical data is, is, is breathtaking. Because you've got two, you know, we, we really are in, I'm Canadian and we have this notion of two solitudes, the English and the French. And, and I don't need to tell you, right? For qualitative and quantitative purposes, we have two solitudes. So if we can build them together, I think we do. Certainly the big advantage is that when we go to the C-suite and we say, we think this is happening and we think you, sh you, you, need a, you need some sense, you need to participate in this change in culture. The pushback is always um, prove it with the secret suspicion of you want me to risk the fortunes of this company and my ability to send my daughter to the university of her choice on an idea you have, on an intuition that just flickered through consciousness, right? And designers and creatives of every kind have done so much of that. You know, just trust me. I'm, I'm an enchanted creature who can see yeah, things. But, but, never... but often they can, they can build a prototype or yes. they can do something which you can put in someone's hands. Try that. Use that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you yeah. can get you can get those the, the, those proof points, but I think when when as soon as you have anything, be it uh, relating to thinking about what's next and decision making about future future strategy, whether you're an anthropologist, an economist, a designer, whoever you are, because all strategy is a hypothesis until you do it, doesn't matter what the inputs are. It could be data inputs. It could be 
a hunch. It doesn't matter. It's still theoretical until you actually do it. Hmm. But I think you can close that abstraction gap and certain disciplines are better equipped to do that. So a finance guy can do a a financial forecast. This is what we think the model looks like. A designer Hmm. can give you a prototype of the app. But I think an anthropologist in a way as you're outlying, I think maybe, and this comes back to the culture as a material that you work with, whoever you are, to kind of generate different um, possibilities uh, and synthesize interpretations which lead to kind of action or a st- strategic input. But perhaps, perhaps that's the growth area for the field. What's the cultural prototype in a way, or what's the what, what's the cultural equivalent of of the model? And, and, yeah. And then it just occurs to me that it takes a knowledge of culture to be able to identify the things that are measurable as indicators of the things that are not measurable. You sure. need to know that they share a cultural, a subterranean um, kind of connection and that this is, and it's always imperfect, but you know, that's the first thing you learn in statistics is, is that this is managed imperfection, right? And, and I think people on the quantitative, the qualitative side, on the design side, the creative side go, oh, this, you know, is, math is so, is, is, is viciously precise and excludes, buys its precision at the cost of all the subtlety and nuance. And I, you see people, uh, who really know what they're doing for statistical purposes, they're not fascistic in that way. They are nuanced and working and listening to the data and letting the data, finding ways to let the data speak. So um, I think there's, there, there are more opportunities for collaboration there between the two, the two communities than, yeah, than I was soft. prepared yeah. to see. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But I think that's interesting what you're saying about you, you have to appreciate culture in a way to then be open for its um, application in the, in the same way that if you have a CEO who's not interested in design, right? Um, you know, by definition, they're probably not going to be open to the possibilities that, 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 that it can bring to the business. Yeah. And I should say that I just had an assignment from um, a big uh, Silicon Valley firm. And the question was, help me tell my designers about culture. And that was the first, yeah, it really was. And I thought, wow, this could be a one-off or maybe it's an indication of something else. If it's the latter, that that would be very interesting. Yes, yeah. Grant, thank you so much for taking some time to speak to me today about these subjects. We could go on for hours and hours and hopefully, well, there'll be maybe a part two. So thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Lee, for the chance to chat. You're right, we could have talked for hours. I wish we had had that opportunity another time, I hope. Thanks again to my brilliant guest, Grant McCracken, for taking the time to talk to me and to you for listening to another episode of the Hybrid Intelligence Podcast. If you want to find out more about Grant and his work, his blog, and also the paper that we referred to during our conversation, you can find links to them in the podcast notes below. Until next time, thanks for listening and keep well.